Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Genuine Chit Chat. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Glenn Livingston. Now, Dr. Glenn Livingston is a veteran psychologist who's also been the CEO of several companies, and he has written a book called Never Binge Again, which has sold over 600,000 copies. Now, the chat primarily focuses on his book. Um, It speaks about his weight loss journey, what led him to sort of look into this a lot more, and how one can change their mindset in a, in a brief summary of the book, as well as just some other questions I had regarding today's society with advertising and exercise and all these sort of things that kind of f- factor into sort of trying to lose weight in today. Now, the chat was over Skype, so there is a small amount of latency delay, and um, I think I've sort of uh, sorted out in post-production primarily, but um, there is a little bit of that delay, so if there are long pauses, I do apologise for that. Um, also, this is the first one I've done over Skype where I've actually recorded as well, as in video, so if you go onto YouTube, you can actually watch me and him have a conversation. I will say that if you do do that, or if you're listening on there right now, um, you will occasionally see my eyes, especially towards the end, sort of avert away... Um, and when I rewatched it, I just wanted to sort of clarify, I have notes to the side. I'm not on my phone or texting or anything like that. I, I have notes to the side that I was sort of reading as um he was speaking to me to make sure that the conversation kept flowing and things. I hadn't really thought about it as obviously it was being video recorded, but um I just wanted to throw that out there just to be sure. No promo for today's show. So as soon as I've basically finished the sentence, there's going to be the intro theme and then the main thing's going to play. And if you're on YouTube, you'll see the video will start to play. Thanks as always for tuning in guys, Um, be sure to check us out on the usual social media things, give us a review on iTunes if you fancy it, Um, all the sort of usual stuff, and as always I'll be back at the end of the chat to give a bit more information on upcoming releases and whatnot, so thanks as always guys, and I'll talk to you at the end. Welcome to Genuine Chit Chat, where we have honest conversations with interesting people, and I'm your host, Mike Burton. Today I'm joined by Dr. Glenn Livingston. Um, do you want me to call you Doctor or Glenn, or do you not mind? I, I prefer Glenn. Most um, sometimes people call me Doctor because they want to feel official or something, but I don't stand <laughs> in ceremony. I I prefer Glenn. Okay, no worries at all, Doctor. No, I'm joking, I'm <laughs> that's how um, it's going to be, huh, mate? Okay. That's what that's how it starts exactly. Um, so yeah, what I was going to say um, is that how many of these have you done? Of uh, interest, just for my own knowledge. 200 250 oh wow you've done a lot of i'm gonna have to try and uh, make sure i'm one of the best <laughs> try and rank up against yeah, all the other hosts yeah yeah so, so far you're the best looking so that we're oh well thank you very much maybe it's because the camera quality in that great you can't see me that well <laughs> um but yeah i um yeah i've looked you up a bit and i've looked at some of the things you've been up to and what was amazing essentially you've done a lot of things obviously so all the listeners won't have uh, researched you. So let's just say, obviously, what's your PhD in? What, what's the start from Cl- there? Clinical psychology. I come from a family of 17 psychologists and therapists and counselors and social workers. So the standing joke is something breaks. We all know how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. <laughs> That's good. So what made you... Cl- clinical psych. I, I was a child and family therapist originally. had a large practice on Long Island. But I also had a very difficult problem with eating myself. And frequently, I wasn't able to be really present. I'd be working in really high-risk situations with suicidal adolescents or a couple right after an affair. But I'd be sitting and thinking about, you know, how do I, how do I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw between patients so I can shovel as much food as I can into, mm. into my mouth? So, yeah, it was a serious problem. 
was a serious problem. Yeah. So was there like a turning point in your life which was really the moment where you kind of went, okay, now I need to sort of uh, get my health in order in a sense? Yeah. I mean, okay. So the story is that when I was about 17, I figured out I'm six foot four, I'm reasonably muscular. And if I worked out for two and a half or three hours a day, I could eat anything I wanted to. You know, two pizzas, a big box of donuts, six lattes, chocolate bars, you name it. I just, whatever I wanted to, and I was thin. And I did not think it was a problem. I thought it was great. But it was this great thing that I found. <laughs> it's actually called exercise bulimia because you're spending an awful lot of time eating and an awful lot of time exercising and you forget about the rest of life. But I didn't know that at the time. And I got away with it until I was maybe 22 or so when I went to graduate school and got married. All of a sudden, I had a lot of responsibilities. I was commuting two hours each way. I lived on Long Island. I went to school in the Bronx. I had a wife. I had patients. And I couldn't exercise for two and a half or three hours each day. But I couldn't stop thinking about food. And I just kept eating and eating and eating. As a matter of fact, I started eating worse because of all the stress. And I, um, my, my triglycerides went through the roof. And the doctors were yelling at me. They were saying, you're going to die before you're 30, 35 oh, wow. at best. I mean, my triglycerides were 1,100 at one point or 1,126, I think was the top number. And I thought I was going to have a heart attack you know, around the corner like a lot of the men in my family, but they had it later. The problem is that because I was a psychologist, everything – if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Mm -hmm. And so – I went the psychological route. I, I tried to love myself thin. I said, hey, Glenn, it's not what you're eating. It's what's eating you. And I went to the best psychologists and nutritionists, and I went to Overeaters Anonymous, and I took medication from a psychiatrist for a little while, and I did everything that I could think of to overcome overeating myself on the theory that I could love myself thin until I was in my early 40s and – I had a dual career. I never had kids and I never had children. And for a lot of the time, I worked at home. So I had a lot of time to work on my career. And I also did a lot of corporate consulting for uh, Fortune 100 brands, a lot of them in the big food industry. Yeah, I think Lipton and Kraft were two of the ones that I saw uh, named online. So yes, proper big companies. Yeah. 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 And I knew that they were willing to pay a lot of money for these big studies that I would do. And I said, well, if these are worth so much money, why don't I do one for myself and see if I can figure this out? So in the days when internet clicks were cheap, over the course of five years, I got 40,000 people to take a survey. And in the survey were questions about what foods do you have trouble controlling once you start eating them? And what areas of your life are you satisfied, not satisfied, stressed, angry, et cetera? And a couple of other personality variables. And I was looking for correlations. The Strongest correlations I found, which were not perfect by any means, said that people who struggle with chocolate, and my benches always started with chocolate, mm -hmm. people who struggle with chocolate, they tend to be lonely or brokenhearted. People who struggle with salty, crunchy things tend to be stressed at work. And people who struggle with soft, chewy things like bagels and pasta, they tend to be stressed at home. Okay. So, yeah, kind of, kind of makes sense in some ways. Yeah, yeah. So I thought I'd look at myself first because I wasn't working with a lot of overeating clients at that time because I knew I had a problem. And I went to my mom who was also a therapist and I said, mom, I am definitely lonely and brokenhearted. And this study says that that's why I like chocolate. But can you tell me anything about my upbringing that would have set up this pattern? 
why do I rent the chocolate when I feel lonely or brokenhearted? And I, I was in a bad marriage, so that's why I was lonely and brokenhearted. Uh-huh. And my, my mom said, honey, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry, but she's got this horrible look on her face. I was overwhelmed when you were an infant, when you were maybe one, one and a half years old. My father, your grandfather, had just gotten out of prison, and I adored him my whole life, but I didn't know that he was guilty doing these things, and it was such a shock for me. I was so depressed. I was so depressed. The other thing that happened was that your father, my husband, was a captain in the army, and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam, and I was terrified. I was going to be a woman without a dad and without a husband with a single, you know, with a, with a small child and another one on the way. Um, I was terrified. And half the time I would just be sitting and staring at the wall and I didn't have the wherewithal to hold you or comfort you or even feed you healthy things when you came running to me crying. And so what I did was I got a little, a little refrigerator and I put it on the floor and in the refrigerator, I put a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup. And when you came running to me, I'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the, to the, chocolate syrup, you'd open the refrigerator, you'd take it out, you'd suck on the bottle, and you'd go into a sugar coma. And at the moment, I thought, Eureka, this is it, right? And if this were the movies, then mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry, and I would never have trouble with chocolate again, mm-hmm. right? Well, I did have a big hug, and a, this, was on, um, this was on Skype, actually, we were talking, but metaphorically, we had a big hug and a big <laughs> cry. I, I learned all sorts of things about her and her life, and I could forgive her more easily. I could forgive myself more easily. So some of the self-castigation and self-hatred went away when I learned that story. So it was a good good conversation to have. But would you believe me if I told you, Mike, that the eating actually got worse? Oh, (laughs) that's surprising. So it got worse because there was this little voice in my head that went something like this. You know what, Glenn? You're right. Your mama didn't love you enough. And she left a big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can find a love of your life, you better go out and binge, 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 binge on chocolate right now. Let's go get some. It was this voice of justification. What that taught me was that it doesn't matter so much why we eat what we eat. I mean, it's interesting. You can have soulful conversations. You can learn about your past and the people in it. But it doesn't matter so much for fixing the problem. It's it's like... It's like trying to understand a fire rather than building a better fireplace around it to make sure it doesn't do damage. Mm. And that the holes in the fireplace that are allowing the fire to get out turn out to be that type of false logic that, um, that justifies breaking your best laid plans. So if I were to say, <coughs> I will never have chocolate on a Monday to Wednesday, Monday to Friday again, and then I heard a little voice in my head that said, you know, Glenn chocolate is really from a cocoa bean and that grows on a plant. So chocolate's a vegetable, right? That, that's the kind of logic that allows people, it sounds really silly, but at the moment of impulse, they can do it. They, and it's easier, I've discovered, to disempower, to recognize and disempower that false logic than it is to put out the fire or figure out where the fire was started in the first place. So you, you want to be more of an engineer or a uh, what is it, masonry who would make the fireplace. You want to be more of an engineer or a mason than a psychologist or a detective. That's the first thing I discovered. Then around that time, a couple of things were going on. One was that I recognized that you couldn't really love yourself thin 
because the part of the brain that the food companies were spending billions of dollars to target is the reptilian brain. And the reptilian brain doesn't know love. The, the, the brainstem, the, the back of the brain here, it really knows eat, mate, or kill. It sees something in the environment and it goes, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? There's no love there. There's no creativity or music or art or concern for family or tribe or relationships or children. There's no spirituality or religion. There's no concern for long-term plans. Just eat, mate, or kill. That's, and it's an activation of the fight, of the very primitive fight or flight response. And that's why when people feel addicted to a food, it feels like they can't survive without it. And that's why all their best laid thinking goes out the window, because there's the reptilian brain and then there's us. This is everything that we value. And the mammalian brain and the neocortex, everything above that, evolved to be able to control the reptilian brain, dominated in the way that we would dominate our bladders. Like you... you you wouldn't say, if you really had to pee, you wouldn't say, well, I have to love myself more. So I've got this incredible urge to pee. You would say, no, I, I have an urge to pee. I need to respect it, but I'll respect it at the proper place and time. Otherwise, they don't let you in restaurants. Right? <laughs> so, so, so this part of the brain, the upper part of us, has the ability to inhibit virtually any impulse virtually any impulse. And it's more of a domination than nurturing your inner child back to health. So it's kind of like when there's a challenger in a wolf pack and the alpha wolf has to put the challenger back in line, it snarls at it and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you. You know, it's, it's not, it's not a, oh, poor baby, you must be feeling sad. You have all these needs. I'm all in favor of people taking care of their authentic needs. And look, I'm a compassionate guy. If you need a hug, I'll give you a hug. Right. But, but it just didn't work. It just didn't work. And the more I tried to love myself in, the worse it got. And I ran across some alternative addiction treatment literature. I was, I was coming out of Overeaters Anonymous, Anonymous at the time. I was about 42, I think. And I ran across this literature that was essentially saying this for drugs and alcohol. And it said that what you, it was Jack Trimpey at Rational Recovery for people who are interested in that. Um, and my system doesn't work for drugs and alcohol, by the way. So if you have a drug and alcohol problem, please use. I was going to ask about that, actually, funnily enough. I was interested. Yeah, no, it, I'll tell you why later. But, okay, yeah, it's cool. Um, but his system does. And he, he basically said that you have to draw a very clear and very bright line. He says, I'll never drink again. And that you, when you draw that very clear and bright line, then you can hear all the thoughts, impulses, images, and feelings that are generated by the lizard brain in an effort to overwhelm the brain and take control. And so you just, you just start to say, well, I will never do that again. I don't have to listen to this animal because I'm the superior human being. I'm the alpha wolf. I'm in charge. So here's what I did. There was something else going on I want to say in a minute. But what I did was I said, this is embarrassing because I'm a sophisticated psychologist. I've done millions of dollars of consulting. This is how I overcame it. So this thing here is my pig. This is my inner pig. I'm going to draw a really clear line on the sand. Like, I will never have chocolate Monday to Friday again. Or I will only ever eat bread in a restaurant again. And that way, if I heard my pig squealing, if it said something that suggested I should have chocolate, I would know that that's not me, that's my pig. And I would say, well, I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. That's how I got over overeating. The reason it, that wasn't a miracle, it just started to work slowly but surely. It kind of gave me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to make the right decision. But it did radically alter my perception of my relationship with food. Suddenly, 
this myth of powerlessness disappeared. I no longer believe the disease model. I no longer believe that I should blame my ancestors. I no longer believe that it was impossible to quit and that I could only abstain one day at a time. I suddenly recognized that I did have the power and that I just had to work on this by creating the right rules, um, making sure that I actually had that conversation when I when I heard the pig squealing for a while, but kind of like you pay attention to the rules of the road when you learn how to drive, but then after a while, you don't have to pay attention anymore. And that's how I recovered. The other thing that was going on that really put this in place for me was I'd done all this consulting for the big food companies, and I recognized that they were spending billions of dollars to engineer these food-like substances. And these are hyper-palatable concentrations of salt and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins that are packaged up in a small space, the most, the most calories and the most flavor and, and bliss um, stimulating sensation they could create for a reasonable amount of money. And then billions of dollars more went into packaging to make you think that you really needed it and that it was really healthy for you. And then billions of dollars went into advertising. There, there are about 7,000 messages a year beamed at us about food. Maybe a half dozen of them are about whole fruits and vegetables, right? So we're being constantly programmed to eat this stuff. I remember talking to an advertising executive in a major food bar manufacturer that was doing really well. And he said, I'll tell you a secret. The reason we're doing so well is we took the vitamins out of the bar because they were interfering with the taste. And we put the money into the packaging instead to make it look healthy. So he sat there and he told me, we're faking you out, right? We're not giving you the nutrition to make you feel satisfied. We're making you think that the nutrition is there. That's perfectly legal. It goes on all the time. And I started to feel, rather than feeling ashamed of my inability to stop or my supposed inability to stop, I started to feel angry. I started to Remember the movie Network where the guy says, I want you to go to your window, open the window and say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> and I, I started to feel like that. I started to feel like I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And I wanted to opt out. So I just started experimenting with rules. I came up with things that I would always do. I came up with things that I would never do again. Eventually, I decided I was never going to have chocolate because it was just too hard to control it. And I came up with things that I would do under certain conditions. And I was very, very clear about the rules. I developed this little system, and slowly but surely, I lost, you know, 55, 60 pounds. It depends upon when you when you weigh me. And my triglycerides came down, and I started eating a lot less of the industrial foods. I was no longer looking for love in bags and boxes and containers. Now I was looking for it more in the whole fruits and vegetables and other natural foods that were available. And it got easier and easier. And not not that. I was ever 100% perfect, but I never felt powerless. I never felt like I didn't have control anymore. If I made a mistake, I knew that I was still in control. I knew I could, in the middle of a mistake, I knew that I could stop any time. So I would have five cupcakes instead of 15, or my binge would be 5,000 calories instead of 15,000 calories. And it just got slowly better because as I realized that I was in control, it just seemed silly to eat the wrong thing because... I could change the food plan whenever I want to. Nobody was telling me what these rules should be. I could change it whenever I wanted to. And I knew that I was the one that was letting the pig out of its cage. I could always put it back. And that's, that's how I recovered. It was not dramatic. It was not um, incredibly scientific. It was fairly crude and primitive. After 30 years of being a sophisticated psychologist and publishing articles and getting on the airwaves to talk about all these scientific things, 
So I, I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. That's that's what got me better. Oh wow, yeah, that's that's very interesting because I mean m- myself, for example, I am um, when it, more so I was a kid, I was very very overweight, and then when I started going through uh, college, uh, high school for Americans, uh, so I was like sixteen ish. Um, that was when I I started to kind of try and take more of a grasp of my own health and things i started to exercise a little bit more and that sort of thing and then it was only about two years ago or so maybe three um i dated someone she was a bigger girl she had issues of eating and controlling uh what she could eat and all this impulsiveness and then after we split i end up kind of putting my foot down and being like you know i'm gonna really try this i'm gonna you make sure i lose the weight all these sort of things and what i found is over the last year especially where i've been a lot more about my own it's, it's no one else i'm not doing it for anyone else i'm just doing it for me so it's like I want to do this. I want to feel better about myself. I want to do these things. And then, yeah, if you do have like a moment of uh, weakness and you fall off the wagon, as it were, you can just get back on it. You you can do these things. Um, and what I found happened is that with my with my relationship with food, even though obviously I love eating chocolate bars and all that sort of thing, and it, it's great to well eat putting chocolate in your mouth tastes great. But what I found is when I eat it less often, it becomes more of a treat. You know, where it's just like, instead of it being like, oh, every day I get in from work and I eat a chocolate bar. Great. It's more, okay, once a week, I let myself have the one and you savor it more. And, and it, it, it's a healthier balance. You know, what what I say about pretty much everything in life is life is about moderation. Um, so I want to ask you about the, we said that the always, uh, never um, conditional. Um, so what, give us, there are some examples of these. I assume like always sort of like health, healthy greens for yours. The never is chocolate. So what are some of the more examples of that? Um, I will only ever have pretzel again, pretzels again in a major league baseball park. I never eat standing up. I always put my fork down between bites. You can make rules that just support mindfulness. You don't have to make rules that restrict anything. And you have to be careful, by the way, when you make restrictive rules that they're not too restrictive, that they're, the addiction to overeating is really an addiction to the feast and famine cycle. And if you keep yourself in famine for too long, if you lose weight too quickly, if you give your body the perception that calories and nutrition are not available for too long, then when it when they are available, your body's going to want to force you to be less discriminating and hoard. That's why for so many people, being full is a signal to eat more. It's because there seems to be some evolutionary mechanism that says, look, we're going to starve if we don't hoard everything we can right now. So now that there's food available, let's get it all in. That seems to be what that's about. Yeah, from a hunter-gatherer sort of things, I imagine back when food wasn't, it wasn't, you can just walk down the corner shop and get unlimited food. It was, you have to go out and hunt. So it made more sense for that sort of thing. And our evolution hasn't quite caught up with our progress as a society. Not, not even close. No? Nope. Not even close. Wow. Go on then. Now, you're correct that... You will experience more pleasure from from the treats if you have them once in a while. There, not everybody can do that. Some people, for some people, never is easier than sometimes. But for probably more than half of the people that I work with, with most of the things they struggle with, it's just as well to try to have it conditionally and define very specifically what those conditions are. Like, I will only have chocolate on the weekends at a restaurant, or I'll only have it in a social event and no more than two ounces at a time or something like that. It's like if you're shooting for a bullseye on an archery target, and you know you might not want to shoot for the exact bullseye sometime, but you still know where the parameters are of the rung around it. You don't just shoot it up in the air because you're not shooting for the bullseye. And that that eliminates 
decision-making, and it turns out the decision-making is what wears down our willpower. And so a lot of times when people felt like they couldn't control themselves in a particular situation, if they decide, well, we're going to Thanksgiving now, right? And to say, well, I will have one plate of whatever food I want to at Thanksgiving, and that's it. Now, they made all their decisions. They're not going to walk into the environment subject to all the smells and social pressures and, and have to make decisions on the spur of the moment, and they find that they're able to do that. What I was saying was, a treat tastes better when you have it once in a while because of the phenomenon in the nervous system called downregulation and upregulation. When your nervous system is presented with a supersized stimulus, we, we had no chocolate bars in the savannah. It didn't exist, just like we didn't have subways. And I remember I lived underneath a subway in graduate school, and the first week I had no idea how I was going to sleep because it was so noisy and came by you know, 20 times a night. Then about two weeks later, I didn't hear it at all. But what happened, my brain said, that supersized stimulus is not relevant. You don't have to pay attention to it. It's not dangerous. It doesn't provide any sustenance. It's not relevant. So let me downregulate the response. That happens with your taste buds. There are no chocolate bars in the savannah. It's a concentrated form of sugar and fat and theobramine and caffeine and all types of other stimulants. And so when you eat that every day, your taste buds will downregulate. And you will not experience the same pleasure as you did the first time you ate it. You certainly won't experience the same pleasure that you're supposed to experience when you eat an apple. However, and so your pig will tell you, you can't change this. You can't give it up or you can't start having it once a week if you were having it every day because you're going to be tortured forever. As a matter of fact, I talk to a lot of people who say that they need sugar just to feel normal. That's the extreme of downregulation. People start to feel depressed in its absence rather than pleasure in its presence. However, the research suggests that I think it's within six to eight weeks your taste buds will double in sensitivity if you let go of a lot of this hyperstimulation. So the phenomenon of upregulation comes into play. If you're having chocolate once a week, then you're not, you're not downregulating six days a week. You're only downregulating one day a week, and you're upregulating six days a week. You get back to a higher level, and so the experience of the chocolate is much, <coughs> much deeper. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, thank you for uh, coming that. Um, out of interest, obviously, I do con want to continue speaking about this and more into your book and there's a few other things as well. But uh, just as a little sort of tangent in a way, um, what's your opinion when it comes to exercise and diet? Like, what do you think is, uh, maybe if it's a percentage or something like that, which one is more important? Like, obviously, you mentioned earlier about the whole um, something bulimia. I can't remember exactly what you said, where you just you eat loads. Exercise bulimia. There you go. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, you eat loads and loads and loads, and then you're like, great, I can just burn this off by exercising loads. And then, obviously, if you spend so much more time exercising just to deal with your, essentially, addiction, it's not healthy for your lifestyle. So, what... What place does exercise have among this sort of uh, reprogramming? First of all, I, I have a hard time getting my clients to exercise. I seem to attract people who don't like to, but partially it's because they're often very overweight and it's uncomfortable to get started. Um, what I do know about exercise, I'm not a medical doctor mm. and I'm not a nutritionist or anything. So this is just a, from a psychologist who's read a lot about it and has exercised a lot himself. It is influential in helping you lose weight, but it's a small part of the variance. So it's kind of more for the long term than the short term. And it's a lot easier to lose weight in the short term by altering your diet. 
you know, most workouts you do for an hour in the gym are not going to burn a lot more than five or 600 calories. So it's easier to get 500 calories out of your diet than it is to exercise. That said, there are so many other benefits to exercise, the regulation of your hormones, better sleep, um, improving of your long-term metabolism. There are so many benefits to exercise that I really think that it should be part of everyone's life. We were meant to move. We were not born to lay around in the sun. We were meant to move. Uh, uh, rest is actually a scarce commodity in nature. So I, I remember being in, I think it was Newport, Oregon on the beach, and there was a dock, and there were about 40 seals fighting for a space on a dock with about 30 places they could rest. And what I was really struck with was how much the seals had to work to knock each other off the dock and get that opportunity to rest. So I think that that's what life in nature is largely about. It's fighting for the opportunity to rest, not resting for the opportunity to fight. And so I believe that's how we evolve. That's what our machinery is designed to propel us forward to do. But in our society, we have remote controls and know, sofas and shelter and, you know, McDonald's in every street corner mm-hmm. and and rest is abundant. And so I think we are binging on rest in the same way that we're binging on fast food. And I think that's a problem. So I also think it could be a problem to exercise three hours a day, mm-hmm. but half hour a day, several times a week, I think most people could do that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is is that sort of thing of trying to uh, moderate things and trying to have like a healthy balance of of everything really. Um how much um I know you mentioned earlier about uh, obviously advertising and all those sorts of things. Like over the lot obviously you've been in marketing and that sort of thing for uh, a number of years. I think I saw it was around 25 years. Was that around the time or was that? Yeah, a, a lifetime. Yeah. A lifetime, yeah. yeah. So, more like so, more like 30, yeah. Okay, wow, yeah. So it's like how over the last few years or a couple of decades have you seen a, like a big change in the way marketing is done especially with food and fast food because obviously there's a surge in uh, fast food you've got these apps now where you can get people just to deliver straight to your house and things like that and obviously fast food has that phenomena kind of been accelerating and getting worse quite quickly or has it been kind of a, a constant what's your sort of thoughts on that well i think the food itself has become supersized at an alarming rate and i think the portions of sugar and fat and salt and oil and excitotoxins that we're having are higher and more dangerous than they've they've ever been. And I think that the messaging around that has become more effective than people realize that it is. Most most people think advertising doesn't affect them, but advertising affects you more if your sales resistance is down. And so thinking that it doesn't affect you is exactly where the advertising industry wants you to be. So I I think that that has accelerated at at an alarming rate. I think that the ability for the company to engineer your bliss point without giving you the nutrition to feel satisfied has accelerated at an alarming rate. And the advertising feedback mechanisms, I mean, privacy is dead. Privacy is just, it's been dead in this country for 10 years. And uh, in, in the advertising industry, we have this saying, when I used to own a digital advertising agency, and we'd say, don't be creepy. So we have the capacity now when you visit a website to follow you around to every other website that you visit and keep advertising to you about the thing that you visited. So let's say, let's say a guy goes to a website about erectile dysfunction, and then 
he goes to visit the National Basketball Association's league, and he sees a great ad about erectile dysfunction. And then he goes to, and he, he goes to, you know, watch uh, an ad about a Disney movie, and he sees this great ad about erectile dysfunction. <laughs> that, that, that's creepy, and that, they're doing it with food also. So you 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 visit a site to buy chocolate, then you're going to get followed around with people that know that you like chocolate, and you can't really get away from it unless you make a serious effort to opt out. So, um, yeah, it's, but, but I think it's hopeless to fight that. I think there are some things legislatively we can do and there's some actions that have already been taken. I don't think we can fight that. I don't think we can avoid the stimulation. I think that the defense is a good offense. I think that we need to step back and think through what does healthy food mean for us specifically? Like, so Rather than debate about whether chocolate is healthy or not, what role do you want chocolate to play in your life? What amount of chocolate do you think is healthy? What type of chocolate do you think is healthy? At what times? In what quantities? And draw the line very carefully so that it's objective. I find that our reptilian brains, our inner pigs, our inner food monsters, they barrel through any ambiguity at the speed of light. So make a really objective line so that it's really easy to distinguish healthy behavior from unhealthy behavior, which means it'll be really easy to distinguish that destructive fat thinking voice from your healthy thin thinking voice. I see. Okay. Um, in, in keeping the same sort of line of this, what's your, are you hopeful for the future? I mean, with, from my experience the last few years where I've been listening to podcasts a lot more and that sort of thing, I've not only noticed that in England, uh, there's been a lot more gyms that have been popping up, like especially ones that open 24 hours a day. And there's a place that opened up recently in me called uh, Fit Chef. And it's a takeaway place, but they only do healthy food, um, which is a very interesting thing. And I even thought about that. But um, so it, do you think we've kind of we're in sort of the worst of it at the moment, but people are now starting to realize the sort of the dangers of it. I know there's a lot of new diets coming in. I know there's always been kind of fad diets for a while, but like the ketogenic diet is a big one. Some people going for the carnivore diet. You know, there's a lot more people realizing, I think potentially from the film Supersize Me, I think, I know that came out quite a while ago, but I think that was one of the first times that people kind of went, oh, I didn't quite realize how bad fast food was for you. I'm not saying anything yeah. in that film is obviously perfect, but it's that sort of thing of kind of just turning people's heads a little bit away to make them kind of think that. So do you think people are getting better? Do you think it's, or do you think kind of like there are a percentage of people who are getting better and then another percentage of people getting worse and it's just kind of dividing more? I think there is an awareness, a burgeoning awareness of what healthy versus unhealthy is. I I think that, um, you know, it's kind of like the trajectory of smoking. People smoke a lot less than they did 50 years ago, but it, it, it moves at a snail's pace. So there's the organic movement, there's the whole foods plant-based movement, there's the exercise movement, and it's, it's all moving along. But I, I think that until the older generation in power starts to step aside, and, and unfortunately, see, it's not just that industry lies to us, it's that the populace wants to be lied to. And people want to believe that things that are not healthy for them are healthy for them. You know, it's, it's like a potato chip infused with omega-3 oil. Well, yeah, it's infused with omega-3 oil, and maybe that's helpful for you, but it's also got acrylamides and other carcinogenic substances from the roasting process. And so... It's a little healthier for you, but you're kind of lying to yourself because you're taking all this carcinogenic stuff. 
and um, which is not to say that people can't eat a few potato chips if they want to have a few potato chips, but I think that people want to be lied to. They don't really want to know what is healthy and what's not healthy because these foods are so addictive and they're so gratifying that people don't want to give it up. Then you add to the fact that people are so stressed these days. They're overwhelmed with the need for information and decision and the stimulus coming at them, not just food stimulus, but you know, look at the number of scene changes in situation comedies these days. And if you look at the graphs of those scene changes compared to 20 years ago, you'll see that it's accelerating, accelerating, accelerating. Look at how loud the movies are. Look at all the action and explosions and, you know, and, um, you know, naked women and, and everything that we're stimulated with. Not that there's anything wrong with naked women, but, <laughs> but, but, but where we wouldn't have had that stimulation on the Savannah. It would, it would be rare that you ran across an explosion or a naked woman on the Savannah. It wouldn't, mm. it wouldn't happen that often. And, and so we are getting – our senses are much more impinged and frustrated, and there's a sense of stress and dysphoria. And so the pig's rationalization that, well, the only pleasure in life is this muffin or this potato chip or you know, this pornography or whatever the – whatever the short-term gratification happens to be, that becomes more and more appealing. And so I think people are engaged in a more and more addictive process. Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, and I was going to say, with your um, with your book, obviously, um, you mentioned how you sort of, you kind of lost the weight and that sort of thing. But when you came to writing the book, was there, had you been th- thinking about that for quite a while and it kind of just, you wrote it because it was the right time? Or was it kind of uh, a moment of clarity where you just decided, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna write this book. I want to tell people what to do. I was never gonna publish this book. This oh, was really? my this was my journal. Are you kidding? I'm I'm a sophisticated <laughs> psychologist. I'm a sophisticated psychologist. I'm I'm nationally known. I'm I'm out there, you know, with credentials and and this was a secret way that I fixed the problem myself. Think I you think I wanted to get up as a doctor and say, well, I got this pig inside me, see, and I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> so no, what, what what happened when I wrote the book? I, it was in 2015. I'd been keeping a journal for about eight years, and I was getting divorced, and I needed something to do for a little while because I was going to be closing down a lot of my other stuff. And I was a minor partner in a publishing company, and the CEO of that company said, we really need to publish a book ourselves. We're trying to teach people how to market on the Kindle. And we know how to do it, but they won't do it. So we need to do it ourselves and prove it. And I told him about this journal. I let him read it. And he said, you got to do this, dude. He said, you have to publish this. And I said, you're crazy. I'm not getting out in there and talking about a pig inside of me. But he said, no, you got to do it. And it's three years later, and we've got 600,000 readers and got a whole business based on it. So I guess it resonates with some people. I guess it helps some people. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's amazing to hear, especially. Um, and you mentioned, um, I'm just trying to think, we've, we've like the Kindle and things like that and the sort of the of the internet it might be a good time now just to kind of do the subtle plug of um your website which uh, we can do uh, we can do it again at the end but um on your website you can we i'll let you go ahead with it shameless self-promotion is that what you're saying yep go ahead yeah it's actually not just self-promotion because we've given an awful lot away for free including the book itself so if you go to neverbingeagain.com and you click on the big red button and sign up for the free reader bonuses you'll not only get a copy of the book in kindle nook or pdf format but We've set up some food plan starter templates, which are sets of rules that could be appropriate to start with for any given dietary philosophy. So whether you're 
low carb or ketogenic or macrobiotic or high carb or point counters or calorie counters. There's a plan for you. The last thing that you get there, it's not the last thing, but the last important thing you get is a set of recorded free coaching sessions. Because I know that this is really weird in theory. I know this sounds really harsh in theory, but it's not harsh in practice. It's actually very compassionate in practice. And I wanted you to hear what it was like to have someone come in feeling despairing and powerless and having no enthusiasm and to really turn around in one session and feel their excitement that they could actually do this. So neverbingeagain.com, click on the big red free bonus button. Cool. Awesome. I just thought I'd um, plug that while we start talking about the book and things. Thank and, you. <laughs> no problem. I will do it again at the end and I'll, uh, I'll include the usual links uh, in the description and stuff. Um, but I have interest. Have you had much uh, criticism from this book? Because obviously you're saying with your standing being sort of, you know, a nationally known um, psychologist, obviously a lot of people probably went to you and gone, this isn't your field. Why are you talking in this field? You know, or disagree with what you're saying. Did, did you have much pushback, much criticism? Well, I mean, I mean, psychologists do work in eating disorders. I just had never done it because I had a problem. I haven't had that particular criticism. And it turns out, I didn't know this at the time, but it turns, because I, I publish this as pure information and education. I don't publish this as a treatment at all. We we are going to work on getting clinical trials and try to try to get it up to scientific standards. But it's not at this point. It's really just education. And it's what worked for me. And if you want to try it, you're welcome to try it for yourself. The So, so I didn't know that the evidence in psychology, the scientific evidence, was starting to lean towards cognitive behavioral interventions for binge eating, plus using some SSRI medications, but mostly cognitive behavioral interventions. And I wound up being contacted by a psychologist who was trying to spread the word, because if you talk to most therapists, you usually get people leaning towards what you'd call intuitive eating, which says that it's unhealthy to draw a distinction between healthy and unhealthy food. They would say you have to be able to eat everything in moderation and that the phenomenon of restricting it all is what causes binging because people get carried away with it and then they rebel against themselves. I think there's a valid point to the idea that some people do better with an intuitive eating approach. So I don't want to say this is the only way to get better in any way, shape or form. A lot of people don't. I think that when we live in a society where there's flavored cardboard in the food system, literally. I, I could show you companies that have gotten permission to put cardboard into our food and flavor it well enough that we don't notice it. If there's flavored cardboard in the food system, don't you have to at some point stand up and say, this is healthy food and this isn't healthy food? Mm -hmm. And we all, we all have some rules. I mean, we don't eat dirt and rocks. We don't eat dog poop. We, we, we all have things that we will and won't do with food. I'm just arguing that we should articulate it. The last criticism that I get constantly is that people think that it's harsh to call yourself a pig. And there's two things I don't understand. First of all, I called my, my reptilian brain a pig. You don't have to call your reptilian brain a pig. You can call it your junkyard dog or your food demon or whatever you want to call it. Just not a cute animal. Just not a cute pet you want to take care of. This is something you're going to dominate. The other thing is that this is no more you than your bladder is you. This is an organ inside of you that you, it generates a very powerful biological urge, but that urge needs to be sublimated and controlled, just like your bladder. If you have to go number, you know, go number two, number one in your mother-in-law's living room, you tell your bladder to hold on. We're going to go find an appropriate place to do that. <laughs> I, I made enough pee jokes. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> there's never too many you can keep on going <laughs> never too many pee jokes well, well we'll see maybe if there's one every minute that'd be too much but at the moment you're fine <laughs> do, do you know about the yellow river by ip daily no it's a, it's a, never mind you got to think about that one okay. um <laughs> your audience will, will get it so now i forgot where i was because i made a stupid pee joke <laughs> <laughs> um yeah we we're talking about obviously talking about the, the pig like people the criticisms of saying don't call yourself yeah. a pig when you're saying it's not yeah. you it's a part of you and what what actually happens so people are afraid they're going to feel worse about themselves and beat themselves up more what actually happens is a part of this process is you wind up forgiving yourself more quickly and you feel better about yourself in time because you gain control over something you felt out of control with. And so the shame actually tends to dissipate. And I tell people, there's a purpose to shame and guilt. There's a purpose, just like there's a purpose to physical pain. There's a disorder in our society, which, um, which has some children born without the ability to feel pain. And those kids don't live past five or six years old. It's very difficult to keep them alive because they run into things, they use knives. It's, it's very, very difficult. Similarly, because you need pain to pay attention to what you're doing to hurt yourself. Similarly, shame and guilt are the psychological equivalents of feeling shame and guilt, of feeling physiological pain, and they're intended to draw your attention to something. Once you've paid attention to it, in this case, let's say you make a mistake and you break your best laid plans, that's, what you want to do is figure out, was it a tricky pig squeal that got me to overeat, that, to break my plan? Or was it, um, was it something that was wrong with the target in and of itself? Do I need to change where the target is and change my food rules? And what would I do differently next time? If you've figured that out, you need to let go of the shame and guilt because the purpose of excessive shame and guilt is actually binge motivated. The pig is trying to get you to feel too weak to resist the next binge. That's a piercing insight. It's very difficult to keep on overeating if you refuse to keep yelling at yourself. And if there's mm. nothing people took away from this interview, that's it. So I tell people to commit with perfection, but forgive themselves with dignity. And linking on to that, what is your opinion in general of uh, fat shaming? Um, like, I'm not saying, you know, go down the street and attack everyone, but we're in this society now, which, you know, there's a lot of uh, bigger women who are doing, say, modeling and things like that, which which I'm for and I'm happy with. But there's this weird sort of thing where a lot of people want, won't want to critique someone from being overweight. And I don't really know where I stand on that because, you know, being with friends and family who are overweight and have been called as such, it's obviously very unpleasant to have that. But there's the other side of the argument, which is if you're shamed in a sense it makes you more want to uh you know work on yourself i just wonder what your opinions are on that and the kind of society of if i say air quotes coddling in a sense um where's the line in a sense i don't think that anybody should be shamed for anything unless they are consciously and purposely doing something to hurt someone else that, that's what i think the, pur the real purpose of deep shame is if you're consciously and purposely trying to hurt someone else then you know shame on you mm. but but I think that shaming people for being fat is counterproductive. And if you look at most formerly obese people's faces, including my own, you can still see some of the shame that they carried on it. That said, I also think that it's a mistake to assume that every, every weight is a healthy weight. And I don't think we should support people to maintain something that is going to result in diabetes or heart attacks or cancer or all sorts of other ailments, I don't think that in the name of acceptance and love, we should support them to stay there. 
I think that we can help them to feel good about themselves as they are addressing the issue. I think that um, everyone deserves love, but I also think that it's possible to take that too far and mistakenly support people to self-destruct. And I don't believe in that. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good point. And so with, with this, um, let's say the eating um, issues that you've had, would you class that under addiction? Would you say that this is uh, what you're trying to teach with the, um, with the book is kind of curbing or guiding to help an addiction? Or do you think that eating is not in the same sort of field as the standard examples of you know cigarettes or drugs and alcohol? Well, the question presupposes that there's another world that we fall into with drugs or alcohol where we no longer have control of our hands or our mouth or our legs or our tongue or the ability to put things in in them. And I don't see the evidence for that. There, There's virtually zero evidence for these addictions being a disease. A disease is something that's contagious. A, a disease is not cured by simply isolating someone. If you take an alcoholic and put them in a cell, they're cured. They can't get alcohol, right? Mm -hmm. if it, so I don't really believe in the disease concept. I think that the neurological changes that they're showing are the results of the behavior, but not the cause of the behavior. So people that drink a lot of alcohol will show a change in their dopaminergic and glutamate pleasure systems, and they will show a different area of the brain that lights up in response to the stimuli. But people who drive taxis will also show those changes if you put a taxi in front of them. Does that mean that they're a compulsive taxi driver or that they have a taxi driving disease? I, I don't think so. So do I believe that the uh, phenomenon of neuroplasticity, that things that that fire together, wire together, that if you teach your brain that this is where the reward is and you give it a super stimulus, do I believe that that becomes harder to avoid doing as time goes on and the more you do it? I absolutely do. And I also believe that we have the power to quit any of that on our own um, with very minimal symptoms. A lot of the, you know, the, the detoxing and the horrific uh, thing people are afraid of with heroin and stuff, it's not quite as... It's not quite as serious as everybody thinks that it is. If you're going to go through that, and I recommend that you talk to your doctor and see what the um, appropriate protocol would be to make sure that you're safe. But it's nowhere near as horrific as everybody thinks that it is. So when you're asking me, do I think that food is as addictive as heroin? I think it can be. I, I think I think it can be, but I don't think that heroin is is um, as impossible to get off of as everybody thinks that that it is. So yeah. Okay, yeah. And so, and, um, so we're linking on to that as well. You, you said earlier in the podcast when I, I uh, we kind of touched on it about this method wouldn't necessarily work for um, drug abuse, for example. Um, why either why is that or why do you think that is or what's the sort of difference here? The, the, the reason for it is, the, the reason that I really had to create Never Mention Again in the first place is that it's not morally reprehensible to eat a box of donuts. I mean, you could argue that you're harming your health and you're the head of a family and you might leave your kids too early or something like that. But it's it's not like knowing that if you take one drink, you're going to wind up behind the wheel of a car and could maim or kill somebody. That's that's morally reprehensible. And so as a consequence, especially with food where you have to eat three or four times a day, you have to create a system where you can forgive yourself for mistakes. Whereas if you're really an alcoholic 
it's better if you quit alcohol today and avoid it like cyanide for the rest of your life. And it is something to feel guilty about if you have a sip. It, it is something to feel guilty about. So, so the softness of this system, the um, this system is way too forgiving to be applied to drugs or alcohol. So I that's what. And also, Jack Trimpey at Rational Recovery has been working with drugs and alcohol for like 25 years. And I, I was never an alcoholic. I quit drinking when I was 22 years old, and I just haven't had a sip. I didn't go to a program. I just decided I didn't like it. It made me depressed. I quit. I don't have that experience. I don't mm. have the experience of an alcoholic, so I don't, I don't relate to it in the same way. And I'd much rather people worked with, with him for drugs and alcohol. Yeah, and also obviously food's got that slightly different dynamic, especially where you need to eat food to live. So yeah. whereas you know you don't need to do heroin to live, you know. So I can understand why that is uh, slightly different. Um, out of interest, what were you doing sort of before this book came out? Like obviously you said you're uh, sort of nationally known. What specifics do you study in in psychology which weren't specifically to do with food? Well, I was doing more in business at that time than I was in psychology, but I was running a coach training organization. And we were advertising aggressively, and we were, you know, always on the first page of Google. And we were, we put about 400 people through an intensive training to teach them how to be business and personal coaches. That's that was my main focus before I, before I got divorced and closed that down and worked on Never Binge Again. We, we still train coaches, but we only train people in this particular method. So we train people who want to help others lose weight and stop overeating. Hmm. Oh, that's that's cool. So um. We're getting near um, sort of end of your time, so I really do appreciate you uh, speak, taking the time out your day to speak to me and things. This is but, fun. Um, this yeah, is it's fun. great. It's a lot. It's great. Um, what? Let's say ten years. What would be the ideal in ten years for you and for sort of let's call it the Never Binge Again movement? I know that you mentioned obviously on your website, which we'll uh, put links to and whatnot. Uh, there's food plans and other sort of media content on there. What is? What do you want to do in the next ten years? And what would you hope to see? I want to help a million people a year to stop binge eating. And I, I want to know that that's a legacy that keeps going. That's the most important thing to me. Ta- tactically, I would like there to be, you know, the ultimate app that I'm not supposed to say too much about that, but I would like to see the ultimate app to help people really engage in this in a fun way and in a very motivating way. And that where they have an index of information available to them to beat any rationalization or squeal or craving that they might have and to do it in a social way to recruit other, others on a quest. I'd, I'd like to see that. I would like to see long-term clinical trials prove themselves to get people off of diabetes med- medication and prevent heart attacks and strokes and you know, I'd like to save some lives. And I would like to see a few hundred highly qualified, active, never binge again coaches helping people around the world to you know, those million people helping those million people to, to stop. That's, that's my vision. Also, I would like to see, like Steve Martin said, death penalty for parking violations. In New York City. <laughs> as long as I'm going to be king of the world, those are the things I want to do. Okay, that's fine. So, you know, we won't have any more obesity, but also punishment by death only on market violations. That's good. Yeah. Interesting way. Um, eventually also, with the internet, what do you think that has, uh, what part that's played? Uh, do you think that's been more helpful for people finding this information through, uh, obviously, your website or the uh, podcasts and the plethora of sort of media content there is online? Um, or do you think that there's a lot of stuff online which is making it worse? Or do you think, once again, it's one of those things where the internet is just the internet. It's kind of good and bad. 
I, I think the internet is not a business. It's a catalyst for your business, and it could be used for good or evil. Um, I would not be where I am without the internet. I mean, Amazon.com has been enormous for us. We, we've been um, between number one and number three most days for eating disorders and weight loss and weight maintenance for, for over two years. So we just, you know, we have 600,000 readers because, and not only because of Amazon.com, but, but Amazon.com combined with publicity. So I couldn't have done it without the internet. And the internet allows the Kindle book to link back to our site and give people all those free bonuses so that we can then talk to them and we can, we can provide the coaching that makes it into a business, which makes us able to advertise more. So I couldn't exist in the way that we exist today without the internet, but neither could a lot of the fast food companies and profiteers that are targeting your lizard brain. They couldn't be as powerful as they are either. So, you know, I don't think we can blame the media. I think we need to work on our missions and goals and, um, and using the media that exists to promote pro-social medias and goals, um, pro-social goals and dreams as opposed to anti-social goals and dreams. And uh, Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. And democracy does not really protect us from capitalistic greed and harming the public's health um, at the in the pursuit of short-term gratification and long-term profit. So we have to protect ourselves. And that's, that's my conclusion. I, I would fight for the country's right and the vendor's rights to sell whatever is legal, because I think that that's a freedom that we fought wars for. Um, by the same token, I think that we really need to understand what they're selling us and, you know, a caveat emptor, buy beware, make a, make an informed decision and, and move forward in that regards. So yeah, that's what I got. To, yeah. Yeah, it's all about like a responsible uh, absorption of media in a sense that you know it's you could you could try and put all these checks and balances on uh, a lot of the big companies and things which could end up harming other companies in other ways. But if you teach the public to review their own cognition as well as how they're absorbing content, that would curb the problem probably easier and better for everyone than trying to force these companies to you know. Uh, have restrictions on them and things. So I think that comes together well. Um, I think I've got just one more uh, question for you, um, really. And that was with obviously why binge again, uh, why binge again, never binge again. Um, yeah, why, why <laughs> That's bin- my next book. Why, why, yeah, why binge gonna, again? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, would you consider, uh, writing books about either any other subjects that have nothing to do with uh, eating or would it be, I'm thinking of like the opposite side of the spectrum. So for example, people who have got eating disorders such as anorexia who aren't eating at all. Have you put any thought or uh, considerations into doing something similar that you're kind of doing with the, you know, never binge again movement with the kind of opposite side or? Um, so there's two separate questions. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> what One is with the more severe eating disorders like bulimia and anorexia. Um, I was never bulimic, I was never anorexic, and I didn't treat a lot of people as a psychologist in that way. So I lack an in-depth understanding of that. That having been said, I can tell you that there do seem to be a lot of bulimics that use it and, and seem to be using it successfully. There are not a lot of anorexics that are using it successfully. Those are both very dangerous disorders. And so if you have that, you really need to get your doctor's permission before you you're supposed to get your doctor's permission if you have any eating disorder diagnosis whatsoever, but especially for 
anorexia and bulimia, make sure that it's okay with your doctor that you're doing this. I, I don't think it helps for anorexia. I think it actually could foster anorexia if someone runs away with it the wrong way. I do think it might help for bulimia. So, Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Mike, I'm, I'm supposed to be on another call, unfortunately. That's fine. I was going to say we're coming to the hour mark now, so I, I, I was going to say you've been very generous with your time. Um, obviously, I'll put all the links to the, the standard of uh, you know, in the description and whatnot, but um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for all your time, Glenn, and hopefully I'll speak to you again soon. Okay. Namaste. I'll see you next time. See you later, okay. man. Bye. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks as always for tuning in, guys. Um, I'll be sure to put a link in the description for Never Binge Again. So be sure to check that out if you want to get a free book and sort of everything that Dr. Glenn was sort of talking about. You can get more information on and all that sort of thing. Um, coming up in the following weeks, um, I've still got the two-parter saved with um, Junior of the We The Lifers Um clothing brand slash other stuff get more into details of that when we release the episode um i've got a sort of one-off episode i've done with my friend tj we kind of ramble off about nothing in particular so that's a bit of a fun one um i've got one that was planned with her in a couple of weeks that may be a christmas one so we'll see about that maybe i'll release those two together um and i do have a skype uh podcast planned for tomorrow because i'm recording this on the sunday um I believe that they're going to be they're still coming through i've emailed them just to double check um so hopefully i get a response from them soon um that's a gentleman called tom king i'll give more details about that later on i don't want to put too many details if it ends up being rescheduled as two of the other skype podcasts i've done have ended up being rescheduled which is not a problem at all but you know i don't want to give loads of details and then nothing happen about it so we'll see about that um i think i want to do another science but simple before christmas and i want to do another sort of gaming one with Reese and Josh. Um, then I'm going to have to start sort of planning some of the more f- other future ones. So I'm going to have to see what comes about there, see if what, what I can get recorded before Christmas. But anyway, enough of me sort of rambling and whatnot. I think, to be honest, that's about it. And be sure to follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, this episode, even though you're at the end of it, um, was on YouTube with full video if you're interested in that. Um, it's just me and Glenn chatting over Skype, so you get to see what I look like in full conversation and things in a not-quite-quality camera. So, woo. Um, yeah, uh, follow us on Instagram. It has a lot more sort of photos and a lot more posts. You know, I post 30-second snippets on there, so you can check out episodes if you sort of are a bit unsure about the subject matter you can just kind of have a little taster of that um i do movie reviews as well which i often i sometimes post on twitter but i also post on facebook and instagram you know just mini movie review like one or two paragraphs with a rating out of 100 um i do things what i'm sort of up to sometimes i'll go see a band live or see just a cool something that's cool like a statue somewhere or museum or whatever i post about that so you know if your instagram's normally i'd say the best way you know check us out on instagram um yeah i think that's about it really um be sure to review us on itunes i know that all podcasters ask that but you know we're quite a small podcast so the more people who review us on itunes it kind of uh, helps more people sort of see us um so that's quite a good thing to do as well um yeah i think that's about it for now really guys and i'm very tired so i'm gonna be going to bed soon so thanks as always for tuning in and i'll talk to you all next week